Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there will be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are still in the book of Judges for a few more weeks. So if you will, turn with me to Judges chapter 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to walk a Bible to you. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 11 and Judges chapter 12. I, I assume this isn't just my family. I assume every family has quarrels. We call them just uh, family discussions, heated family discussions. Uh, but perhaps the most vicious fights are found not around the kitchen table. In, in some ways, the most vicious fights can take place around the coffin. Uh, for, for a season, I worked at a university in their advancement department, which is just a fancy word for fundraising. We, we just raised financial support for the university. And sometimes men and women would leave the university as a part of their, their estate, their inheritance. They would leave the university part of their estate. Now, we always knew about this, but sometimes it was awkward because sometimes their children didn't know about this. And when you think that you're going to get a big piece of the financial family pie only to find out that you get a smaller piece or no piece, well, there can be lots of fights, can't there? Inheritance can be messy business. Well, the book of Judges is preceded by the book of Joshua. That's the book that comes right before the book of Judges. And the basic narrative of the book of Joshua is that God finally, uh, th through Joshua, the leader, finally bring the people of God, Israel, out from the wilderness into the promised land. And so by the end of the book of Joshua, they've, they've, they've come into the land, but in chapters 23 and 24, as Joshua kind of gives his farewell address right before he dies, we learn that they've still got work to do in the land. They're in the land, but they need to now cash their inheritance check, as you were. They need to take possession of the land and push the other nations out. And so when you open up the book of Judges, you, you, you assume that that's what this book is all going to be all about, about God's people pushing the other nations out. After all, Joshua tells us if they don't do this, they'll start worshiping other gods and then eventually become enslaved to those gods. Well, they don't do it, do they? We learn in the first two chapters that they only partially take possession of the land. They only partially kick out these other nations. And so then what kind of unfolds is that time and time again, they start worshiping other gods, start other Nations are raised up and enslave them, and they cry out time and time again for a judge to save them. But underneath that tension, sort of like an aquifer, runs another tension. And it really is the tension and the theme of inheritance. And the tension, we could, we, we could say this, is this. Can God's people because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their disobedience, can they forfeit their inheritance? 
Can God's people, because of their sin, forfeit their inheritance to the land? As God kind of declares his will, because of Israel's disobedience, will God write them out of the will? That's one of the tensions and one of the themes that gets unraveled in the book of Judges. And it especially does in these two chapters, the story of Jephthah, which is an odd story. It's a weird story. It's a hard story. But let me just say, it's all about inheritance. The, the breakdown, as you're going to see, is all about Israel and Jephthah fighting for an inheritance, losing their inheritance, and then God raises up more saviors. So this is the big idea. It's going to kind of work itself out in three parts. First, God promises an inheritance. Second, sin disqualifies our inheritance. But then third, God's got a plan. And it's a really good plan. A really good plan. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 11. We're not going to read all of this. We're going to read most of it. We're not going to read all of chapter 11 and 12, but by the time we're done, we'll read most of it. So look at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew, grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites... Now, here, let me just pause. There, there's going to be Ammonites and Amorites. I'm going to mess this up, okay? I just promise you this, okay? There are different nations, but there's the Ammonites and the Amorites. I just want to... I'm sorry. I, every time I read it, I, I, I mix them up, okay? All right. Verse 4, the Ammonites. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me, when, hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. We'll stop there. Well, we're introduced to a, a man named Jephthah. Verse 1 says he's a mighty warrior. But he's not just a mighty warrior. He also has a very, very questionable past, doesn't he? He's the illegitimate son of his father. He, he, he's, his mother was a prostitute. And so eventually, the legitimate sons get annoyed, right? 
and they run him out of town. And they say, you're not one of us. We all have blonde hair, you have brown hair. You're not one of us. You don't get the inheritance. And so they run off Jephthah. Verse 2. And so he goes to the land of Tob. The land of Tob is somewhere in the kind of northeast region, kind of on the border of Syria. It's on kind of the frontiers of Israel. And when he lives there, he attracts a bunch of outlaws. Jephthah runs with the rough crowd, right? You can think of it this way. Jephthah starts kind of um, going underground. He, he's sort of a, a kingpin. He's the original godfather. Well, verse 4, the Ammonites begin to take and make war against Israel. And the, the elders of Gilead, they're, they're desperate, aren't they? And desperate times call for desperate measures, and so they need a leader. And here's Jephthah, who's good with a sword, and so they ask him, beg him. And Jephthah basically says, you hate me. Or at least you did hate me. You made me run from my own land. Why, you, you, you're just doing this because you're desperate. To which the elders would pretty much say, yeah, that's exactly right. We are desperate. And it's interesting that you, you almost get this echo, I don't know if you notice it, between chapters 11 and chapter 10. Because God says this very same thing to Israel. Jephthah says, you only want me because you're desperate. And God, back in chapter 10, said, you only want me, Israel, when you're in need and when you're desperate. Isn't that so often how we treat God? Well, eventually Jephthah says that he'll do it. He'll, 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 he'll be their judge under one condition. Verse 9. If you bring me home again. Jephthah wants his inheritance back. He wants to go home. He wants his land back. And he wants assurance that that's exactly what they will give to him, to which they say, yep, yep, we promise before God we will do exactly what you say. Just be our judge. And so, verse 9, the elders reassure him, and they all agree, and then Jephthah, he agrees and becomes their judge. Now, look at verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me? And what do you come and have why that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Aran to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Therefore, restore it peaceably. Okay, what's going on here? Jephthah sends messengers up to the king of Ammon and basically says, why are you attacking us? This isn't making sense. And the king of the Ammonites basically says, I want my land back. You stole it. It's mine. I want it back. So if you want to do this peacefully, that's fine, but that's my land. And so what we see in verses 14 all the way down to verse, uh, to verse 28 is Jephthah's response to that. Jephthah argues why that king is wrong, and he does so in three ways. Jephthah is actually an amazing defense lawyer. 
And so he gives three arguments to refute the king of Ammon. The first one in verses 15 through 22 is a historical argument. Jephthah just basically sets the historical record straight. He says, no, it was never the Ammonites or the, the uh, Ammonites' land. It was never their land. It was the Amorites. Okay? That sounds the same. It almost looks the same, but they're not the same people. When Israel came up out of the wilderness to take possession of the land, it was the, that land was possessed by the Amorites. And Israel won it fair and square. They attacked Israel. Israel in such defense then attacked and then took the land. It was never the Ammonites. So that's the first thing he says. He says, you get your, you've got your history all wrong. And then second, Jephthah argues theologically in verses 23 through 24. Basically, he says, well, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe history, then just believe this. God gave us the land. It's God's whole world. God gave it to us by divine right. So there. Well, thinking that those pro- that probably wouldn't settle the, the debate, he then gives a third and final argument for why the king of Ammon is so wrong. And you could look at it this way. He, he uses in verses 25 through 27 sort of like legal precedent. And he basically says, when we came uh, into the land, the, uh, you know, and, and we took it from the Amor- Am- Amorites. See, I told you I'm going to mess up all these, these names. Okay, when, when we took it from the Amorites... Moab didn't do a thing. And the descendants of the Ammonites didn't do a thing as well. You didn't say, hey, that's our land. You just sat by and said, yeah, you took it. That's fine. So if the descendants were fine with it, why aren't you fine with it? It's a sort of legal precedent argument. Well, though, though he makes these arguments, verse 28, and, and they seem like they're convincing arguments, Verse 28, we read, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. We've all had those discussions in which we had the better argument, but we still lost the debate. That's Jephthah. And so, after that, we need to wonder, what's going to happen And if we've read the book of Judges, we know exactly what's going to happen. War. War. But but, but before we get to war, which is on the horizon, we need to ask, what's the author's aim in all of this? What's the point of all of this? Well, we learn in the first 11 verses about Jephthah's personal inheritance, which he's fighting for. And then in verses 12 through 28, it's all of Israel's inheritance that's in dispute. That's in question. And so the structure points to the theme, which is, it's all about inheritance. God's people have an inheritance. Now that inheritance is a land. We, we read that in Genesis 15. God promised a few things to Abraham back in the Abrahamic covenant. One of those things is a land. And the book of Judges is about God's people inheriting that Abrahamic promise coming into the promised land. God's people taking possession of their inheritance, their divine right to that land. That's what the book of Judges is all about. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, that land is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. 
which isn't literal milk and honey. It's, it's sort of a, a metaphoric description of saying that there's, it's bountiful, it's glorious, it's amazing. That's the land. That was their inheritance. But it wasn't just the land. You see, the land, it symbolized something. It symbolized a promise, not just for real estate. It promised that that's where God and man would meet. It was a promise about a relationship. It was a promise about intimacy, that God would have a relationship with his people in a land. You see, the gift of the land was never supposed to be an in of itself. It was a means of developing a relationship between God and his people. God wasn't just interested in real estate. Oh, he's interested in far more than that. And we know that because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's not just Israel that has an inheritance. God has an inheritance. Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, we read this. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out from the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. God's inheritance is a people. And it's not just Israel. God's not just talking about Israel here. If you just keep flipping to the, to the book of First Peter, Peter, by divine inspiration, writes about the church, and we read of this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, God's inheritance. God's people is God's inheritance. In other words, God desires as his inheritance a relationship with people. There are some odd things in the Bible. There are some odd truths in the Bible. I think one of them is that God, the infinite God, the sovereign God, he would want a relationship with any of us. I mean, when you think about that, it's kind of an odd thing that God, that big, amazing, glorious, the one and only true God, King of King, Lord of Lord, wants a relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. And if you're not a Christian, in, in many ways, this is, this is what, what the Christian gospel is all about, that you can have a relationship with God, which might be odd. It might be weird to think about having a relationship with God, and yet, I think all of us want it. Deep down, we want to be loved and approved of. We want to be liked. We want to be in a relationship with something outside of ourselves. So if you're not a Christian, in many ways, that's what we offer you today. We, we're a church filled with men and women who can testify to the reality that you can have a relationship with God. And for the rest of us, for, for the Christians, I think there's something uh, by way of application to say that that's us too. We can have a relationship with God. And it's a relationship that none of us should settle on. It's a relationship that all of us should seek to deepen. I mean, if you've walked with, with God for a long time or, or not that long, if you're very seasoned or not seasoned at all, 
Wherever you're at with your relationship with God, there are, there is deeper intimacy yet to be had with Him. In many ways, when we, when we read of God's inheritance being His people, to have a relationship with Him, a covenantal relationship based on grace, we should be pinching ourselves. And we should all be asking the question, how is it that we can, in this season, deepen our relationship with God? I mean, in many ways, there's, there's, there's simple ways to do it, right? Reading God's Word and prayer, being with God's people, coming to church, all those ways are deepening our relationship with God. But I guess I'm just wondering and asking, in this season of your life, how is it that God is, is, is asking and pursuing you to deepen your trust and faith and intimacy with Him? First, God promises an inheritance. But now, starting in verse 29, we learn that our sin disqualifies us from our inheritance. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Metzpah and Gilead. And from Metzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Then go down to verse 34. Then Jephthah came to, the, to his home at Metzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet with him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take it my, my vow. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then she sent her away. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountain. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. We'll end there. So in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And it's interesting that this is the shortest quickest, least amount of details about Israel's victory over another nation. It's just one verse. It just says they have victory. That's it. In many ways, the author doesn't want us to focus on and see this war, this, this battle. It, it's something else he wants us to view. Because right before he goes to battle, Jephthah makes a vow. And he basically says, anything that comes out of the doors of my house, 
I'll sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord. Unfortunately, and I'm glad my daughter's not in here right now because I think I might start crying just seeing her, right? His daughter comes out. And did you notice the detail that the author gives us? His only daughter. No other sons. That's it. This is all he has. His daughter walks out and he sees her. And he weeps. The only thing she asks is, is if she could have two months to go up on a mountain and weep for the life that she will never have. Verse 36. Now, what do we do with Jephthah? Is this just like bad luck? Is that what's going on here? He was just hoping that, a, that a, an animal would walk out and, oh no, my daughter. Is that what this is? It's just bad luck? I don't think so. For, for one, in this time, animals didn't really live in the house. So I don't think he's assuming that as he walked up, an animal would just walk up to him. I don't think that's what's going on. I think he makes this vow assuming that he's going to sacrifice a human. I think it was just the wrong human. I think he was just hoping it was a servant or a slave or someone in his household. It's not just that he mourns that he has to sacrifice a human. It's that he has to mourn the sacrifice of his only child, his daughter. You see, the daughter was, as the author points out, it was his inheritance, right? He now has the land, but where is he going to pass on the land if he has no children? With one vow, he now cuts off his inheritance. He had just received it back, and with a sentence, a vow, something he says to God, he's now cut it off. It's gone. And I don't think he makes that vow casually, like he was, you know, oops, I shouldn't have said that. I don't think that also is what's going on. I think this is premeditative. He purposely makes this vow and says basically back in verse, uh, verse 19, when he makes the vow, he basically says, or sorry, verse, where is it? Uh, verse 31. He basically says, God, if you deliver me, if this victory is assured, if you give me this victory, I will give you any woman, any person, anything that walks out of my house. I think this is a rational, premeditative thing that Jephthah does. And it's interesting because Jephthah knows his Bible. I mean, just go back to that negotiation, that, he, that, that sort of history lesson about the king of Ammon when they were going back and forth. I mean, he knows his Bible really well. It's, it's apparent that Jephthah is well-versed in his Bible. And so he knows about Deuteronomy 12, which says that human sacrifice is detestable to the Lord. God hates it. He knows that, and yet he follows through. And not just that, he doesn't just follow through with this vow, he makes it in the first place. And in many ways, he does this because I think he's so enculturated in his own culture that I don't even think he thinks that there's anything wrong with what he's just done. Back in those days, in order to awaken a God, you had to get their attention. 
You had to kind of incentivize God to, to work on your behalf. And so it was very, very common for people to sacrifice a human so that the God would notice them. And I think that's what he's doing. He's mingling true worship with false worship. He's, he's kind of functionally buying into a pagan worldview, thinking that in order to secure victory, he's got to sweeten the deal with a human sacrifice. I don't think this was a rash decision. I think it was a cold-blooded, calculated decision that he makes. He wants to get the Lord's attention, and he thinks that he could get the Lord's attention by lavishing him with a human sacrifice. And yet little does he know that God had already promised the victory to him, hadn't he? The victory was already him. And God also said, I'm going to use Jephthah in order to accomplish this victory. Jephthah, I think, is too steeped in his own world and his own culture to see how he was mingling true worship and false worship. God's word spoke to him. It spoke clearly to his mind, but it wasn't the loudest voice in his mind. It wasn't the only voice in his mind. So often we forget. We, we sometimes just think that, oh, it's just God's word that speaks into our minds and into our lives. But it's not. There are lots of voices all vying for our attention. And it's so hard because we think, oh, no, I have this pure and undefiled religion. And sometimes we don't even see how our religion can be steeped in our culture. We call these cultural blind spots. And so it's easy here to see Jephthah's blind spot, isn't it? And it's easy to look back 50 years and see the church's blind spot. We can point it all out. Wrong, 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 wrong. It's a lot harder to see our own blind spots, isn't it? The other day I was at a, uh, a birthday party and I ate a cupcake with like, I think it was cream cheese frosting. And so I ate a cupcake, and about, a, you know, a half hour, 15, an hour later, I saw, looked in the mirror, and I realized I had cream cheese frosting on my face. I didn't notice it. No one pointed it out. We all have blind spots like that, right? In many ways, we need each other. That, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is helping each other follow Jesus. You see, what the, the basic understanding of discipleship is, is twofold. One, we need each other. And two, all of us, metaphorically, have cream cheese frosting on our faces. We all have blind spots. We all have things that we don't see about our lives. And so we need each other to point those sorts of things out. You see, God, Jesus, at the very end, right before his ascension in Matthew 28, he says, make disciples. He says, make disciples. It's, it's, it's a binding command, not on the elders or the apostles or a pastor. It's a binding command for every single Christian. Make disciples. Which doesn't mean that you have to be the expert. It doesn't mean that you have to know the most. It means that by nature of you having the Holy Spirit, you can help someone else follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that you have to be the expert, but it does, need to, it does mean that you must initiate. After all, Jesus says, go and make disciples. There must be a going. There must be an initiation. 
This looks very, very simple. It can look like having a quiet time with someone, having a lunch with someone and reading a Christian book. It can be like a bunch of women inviting each other out and you turn on nanny Netflix. You know what that is. Turn on a Netflix, have your kids watch that, and you pray together and encourage each other and keep each other accountable. But the point is, Christianity is not a lone ranger sport. Christianity is never meant to be lived out by ourselves. Christianity has always been meant to live out in community because we need each other, because we have blind spots. We need to speak the gospel into each other's lives. We need to pray the gospel in each other's lives. And sometimes we need to rebuke each other's lives because of our approval and security we have in the gospel. Jephthah was dead wrong in his vow. It's a brutal truth. But so often we're dead wrong in the many things that we think about too. We all have blind spots. And we need each other to expose and bring to light those blind spots so that all of us can make steps towards growing in maturity and in our faith as we follow Jesus. We need each other. We very much can't do this alone. I'm not the only one with cream cheese frosting on my face. Well, that is a low point, but in some ways it gets even lower. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn down your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and, I, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? We'll stop there. We learned about the Ephraimites back in Gideon's day, didn't we? The Ephraimites were mad at Gideon that Gideon hadn't called them earlier because the Ephraimites are like the LeBron James of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He's the all-star. The Ephraimites were the great tribe of Israel. And of course you call the starting five to come in. And so they're like, Where, why didn't you call us? And Jephthah says, well, I did call you and you didn't show up. And so he sort of justifies his position and the reason why he does this. And then in verse 4, he, 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 he basically says, stop insulting me. I mean, the, the, these Ephraimites bear arms. They're about to kill. That's how angry they are. And so the Gideonites with Jephthah attack the Ephraimites. And they do it by cutting off the Ephraimites from their own land, from the Jordan. It's interesting that in the past, in, two, in chapters 3 and chapter 7, Ephraim cut off other nations from the Jordan, because that's where their tribe is. So they cut off other nations, and now, conversely, Jephthah cuts them off by way of the Jordan from their own inheritance, their own land. 
And he does so by using a word, a code word. And so every time, a, you know, someone would say, and be like, okay, you're crossing the Jordan, where are you going? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to visit my, my friend in Asher. And they'd be like, well, say this word. And if they said the word wrong, they'd be killed. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I had this young man who lived with us, and he was from Mississippi. And one day, it was pretty cold outside, and we were running to the grocery store or something, some errand, and he said, oh, hold on for a second. I got to go grab my toboggan. Weirdo. And I literally looked at him, and I said, we're not sledding to Safeway. He laughed and said, a toboggan is like a type of hat. Again, weirdo. <laughs> the point being, right, him using that word betrayed, he, he wasn't from Portland. He wasn't from the Northwest. I've never heard someone in the Northwest describe their hat as a toboggan. Okay? Well, what happened in these days is when people tried to cross the Jordan, if they used Mississippian, if they called things their hat a toboggan, they, they were murdered. They were killed. And we learned that 42,000 members of that tribe were killed and died. And then verse 7 ends with Jephthah's death. No reference to children either. This is what sin does. This is a description of what sin does. Sin disinherits us. Sin cuts us off from God and his promises. Now this starts way back in our Bibles. Adam and Eve, if you remember, are in the garden. Glorious garden in perfect relationship. And God's with them. They have a land and they have God. And they have tasks to do. God just says, don't eat from that tree. That's it. But they don't do it. And they eat from that tree. And as a result, Adam and Eve are disinherited. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And they can't return. That's what sin does. Sin disinherits us. The men's Bible study is uh, going through the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, there's four visions throughout this big book. And one of the visions is Israel, who, or uh, Ezekiel, who's in Babylon in exile. He, in a vision, goes back to the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 11. And he has this sort of tour of the temple. And it's horrifying. There's just idolatry. There's, there's horrible sin in the temple. It's just hard to look at. And the point is that right after that, there's a description that it says, the land vomited the people of God out because of their sin and their idolatry. Why the exile? Why did God, why did Babylon and Assyria attack? And why did God's people get carried off in exile? Because of their sin. Because of their idolatry. Sin and idolatry disinherits us. You see, sin is not just the breaking of the rules, although it is that. Sin is the breakdown of a relationship with God. It's an attack on the human-divine relationship. And though God promises an inheritance, and God is good on his part to deliver, our sin blots us out from God's will. That's what sin does. 
So what we have up to this point is the Ammonites subdued. But next to that, we have Jephthah's daughter in a grave. We have the Ephraimites' pride finally taken care of, but we have 42,000 Ephraimites crying out from the grave as well. And so sort of mingled in this salvation that happens in these two chapters is tragedy. Yes, God's, God's enemy, the Ammonites, have been pushed back. They've been beaten back. But the skies over Gilead are gray skies. And so God in these chapter is reading his will and says, your sin is disinheriting you. It's cutting God's people off from God himself. And yet, here's the amazing thing, and you're going to like this. God has a plan. Look at verse 8. After him, Ibzin of Bethlehem judged Israel. Verse 11. After him, Elon the Zebulite judged Israel. 13. After him, Abnon judged Israel. Boom, 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 boom. Three judges right there. Eight verses. Ebzon from the tribe of Asher judged for seven years. Elon from Zebulon judged for ten years. And Abdon from Ephraim judged for eight years. God has a plan, and you're going to really like this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the book of Judges, there are 12 judges. 12 judges, starting in Othniel, ending in Samson. 12 judges. And each judge is represented by one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So each tribe gets one judge. That's how this book functions. Every tribe has a judge that represents them. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 judges, each judge coming from a different tribe. And the clear point in all of that is that all of Israel needs a judge to save them. All of Israel. Now, all of the judges, in one sense, represent the ultimate judge, the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. But they all fall short, don't they? In chapter 11, Jephthah is a shadow of Jesus Christ. Just think about it. He was rejected. And your mind should go to John 1, right? Jesus came to his own, but his people did not receive him. But even more than that, chapters 11 through 12, if you put it together, you understand how God is going to deliver them and their inheritance when they've disqualified themselves from their own inheritance. You see, the covenantal promises which will be realized. God, God, in, back in Genesis 15, he like stakes his entire life on this reality. God will fulfill his covenantal promises. And yet at the same time, only those who believe and obey God will receive those promises, those inheritance, that inheritance. But they all disobey. They, they, they all disobey. They all fail. But there is one child of Abraham. There is one true Israelite who perfectly obeys Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who fully obeys God. 
who completely lived in such a way that he didn't disinherit himself. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. All those who put their trust and faith in that Jesus are now adopted. Adopted children of Abraham. And then given a, uh, an inheritance that is far greater than a piece of land. That, that their inheritance is the kingdom of God. And they're adopted into God's family. And now, by nature of this, they have divine claim on God's divine kingdom. I mean, you want to talk about a kingdom. You want to talk about an inheritance. This is amazing. Peter describes it this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. It's an inheritance kept in you in heaven. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're given an inheritance. And that inheritance, it can't spoil. It can't fade. It can't perish. Why? Because we can't mess with it. It's not kept on earth. It's kept in heaven. And who is it guarded by? It's not guarded by us and our works or our abilities or our giftings. It's guarded by God himself. God keeps his inheritance. You see, one of the amazing things back at Genesis 5 in the Abrahamic covenant, one of the promises that we read is God says, and because of Abraham's faith, he credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace. One of the great promises of the Abrahamic covenant is that God would now interact with people through grace. Through grace. And so now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're given an inheritance that can't spoil or fade or perish. And how is this sealed? How, how is this sealed? It's not sealed with pen or paper. God seals this by his spirit. Romans 8, verse 14, we read this. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Our sin disinherits us, but Jesus' sinlessness writes us back into the will, writes us back into the family will. The promise of God's inheritance is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, such that all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they'll inherit the estate of Jesus Christ himself, which is a kingdom described as an everlasting city where God and man will fully and finally be together, where evil and sin and darkness and death and sadness will be closed out forever. That is the great inheritance that we have.
Judges 11 and 12 is all about inheritance. It's about an inheritance promised. It's about inheritance lost. And it's about inheritance found in Christ Jesus through grace. And in the end, God really will gather all people together. And in that, that last day, God will read a will. And some will be in that will and others will not be in that will. The question is, will your name be in that will? Let's pray. God, we, we are grateful that you don't interact with us based on our performance or our abilities or our gifts, but you interact with us through grace found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to that great inheritance, that, that kingdom of God. We, we, we have a taste of it now. We, we, we see it come in Jesus Christ, but Lord, we, we desire to see it fulfilled when Jesus returns. So we pray, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.